What's up, folks? Justin Garcia, a.k.a. Master Chim here. And I am here with my friend, or at least has been a friend in my head for a few years now, uh, Mr. Matt Flavel of the Ossetru Folk Assembly. Matt, you want to say what's up to the listeners? Hey, guys. It's an honor to be on your program. Like uh, Justin said, it feels like I've known him for a while now, even though it's the first time we're actually talking. That's right. And um, I know your wonderful wife has been a participant on a lot of the the podcast stuff, and it's it's it, it became a familiar name. And then seeing you know through mutual friends through social media, I see you know who's connected to who. So it's you know it's very. I feel like I've known you for some time, even though this is technically the first time we've ever had a conversation. Um, now your title, All's Hair Yargothi <laughs> of the Perfect. AFA. Uh, what does that title entail? And then we'll backtrack. I really just wanted to say the, the word before or in case I forgot how to pronounce it so early on. <laughs> so let's get that. What that no, title you did, you did perfect. You did. Appreciate it. You did better than most people. Uh, <laughs> phonetically, it's an Icelandic or an Old Norse word that means basically the hair is the war band. The hair yar is the warrior. It means the gothi for all of the warriors. Uh, honestly, you know, as it is today, I'm basically the high priest of the Astro Folk Assembly. I'm the uh, CEO of the 501c3 church that we operate under. And, you know, spiritually, I'm, I'm the head of our church. Right. And is that what you do, for lack of a better phrase, is that what you do for a living? That is what I do full time. Uh, my my small housing allowance, I don't think really counts as a living. But, <laughs> yeah, that, that is what I do. Uh, full-time now running the AFA. Uh, it's really nice. We've gotten big enough now that it, it requires that kind of, that kind of maintenance, but. That's awesome. That's awesome. So we're going to backtrack somewhat and uh, start, I guess, at the entry level for the layman, the person who is either of a different religious, you know, flavor or uh, people mm -hmm. who are just not, you know, not uh, exposed to what you do at the AFA. What is Asatru? Um, Asatru is the pre-Christian faith of most of Europe. Um, I guess it's under the broad category of paganism, though I don't hold myself to have much in common with, with the way that term's used these days. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's basically what it is. Uh, people would be very familiar with it. We, we call our gods by the names familiar to uh, the, the, Norse, the Norse people, so Odin, Thor, Frey. Right, right. And now, pre-Christian, uh, that's something of significance. As the, the Christian, uh, I guess, um, marketing team <laughs> toward Europe, uh, things tended to change. And, you know, obviously, you know, the, the majority of, and, and I say majority, uh, just as a, a speculation, I don't know if that's actually the case, but uh, a significant portion of Europe became Christian uh, once that was introduced. What was the return to the pre-Christian roots? Why was there? And I've had Steve McNallan on before. He and I had a great conversation a few years back. Uh, but to reintroduce everybody again, why is it that there was a return? Why was there felt a, a need to return? And uh, what was the impetus for that, you know? Well, one thing, when, uh, when Christianity first made its way north into Europe, it had to be altered very significantly from, from Paul's church or, you know, the church in the Middle East, because European people, their mindset was very different. 
So you see uh, early medieval Christianity adopt so much of European paganism to make it palatable to a European audience. Well, over the, you know, over the 1500 to 500, depending on where you're at in Europe, years worth of conversion and, and movement there, the Christianity slowly lost a lot of that European paganism or the stuff that really spoke to the European folk soul and became much more about, you know, universal brotherhood and turning the other cheek and basically spirituality that was very foreign to the soul of European people, all the nobility that uh, Europe had been built on. is kind of slowly eroded by Christianity. And we found ourselves in modern times in a place where a lot of European folks weren't served by the church. Christianity didn't really fill that need in their soul. And uh, I think a lot of people discovered that around the same time, but with the reawakening of Austria, and you, you mentioned Steve McNallan coming on your program um, in the late sixties and early seventies, he, he kind of put a name to it and gave it some direction and made that, made that happen and made it take off. And if it wasn't for, for him and his vision he had back then, you know, I certainly wouldn't be here today doing what I'm doing. Right. So I, uh, I understand Christianity. Like why did, did Christianity morph into that? I would say, you know, based on a lot of my own framing of, of my relationship, my understanding of the world, it's, they were on mission. And once, you know, Europe was sort of on board, the greater mission then became, well, how do we now bring everybody to the point where, there are no real anomalies or, or, or even differences between people and how eventually there are going to be certain groups that may have been, you know, spoken to in a certain way to have them, you know, appreciate and come on board, how that became less of a priority for the greater mission. And, and so that makes sense. Uh, but now having said that about Christianity, what is the mission of Asatru? Um, It's a complex question, but I think it's a really important one. Um, I suppose the mission of Austria is different depending upon the time and the place of the European folk. Um, right now, the mission has been to reawaken our people to an authentic faith of European descended people and to bring us back home spiritually to that. I think that um, one of the fundamentals in that mission always is what Austro means. It means troth or loyalty to the Aesir. And I think that reconnecting uh, the, the sons and daughters of Europe with our native spirituality is extremely important. I think that's the goal. And then see the, the success and the flourishing of our folk to where, you know, European descended peoples can be happy, fulfilled, build a noble character, regain the kind of, ability to hold our head up and put our chest out and carry ourselves with presence and nobility. I think that's certainly always been a fundamental goal of Alistair Right, right. What's the difference between uh, Asatru uh, or being an Asatruer and being a heathen? Heathenism and Asatru. Is there a distinction to be made? Is it just semantic? Linguistically, no, but there's certainly commonalities, at least in the United States and how that's referred to. Very often, uh, the word heathen's taken on a lot in the middle part of the country, it seems, kind of regionally. Um, <clears throat> it doesn't... 
trying to think of the best way to phrase it without being disparaging. The the term it's not the best word for for the group. Is that the you idea? know I a lot of people like it. I liked it early on. Um, but the commonality of people who tend to call themselves heathen are the kind of no rules, we do whatever we want, backyard, barbecue, just have a good time on the weekends group. Not certainly not everybody that uses that word. That seems to be a commonality with it. When I find people using the term Austertru, they're very often affiliated with the Austertru Folk Assembly. They tend to worship in a more structured way and have, you know, have a group identity rather than a very loose unaffiliated uh, presence within within the community, I guess. Right. Are there any other groups that represent Asatru uh, other than the AFA? I suppose that depends if you want to ask them. Yeah, there there certainly are. Uh, the Odinic Rite, I think, represents Asatru. Uh, they would call it Odinism, but fundamentally it's the same thing. Um, I think the Austro Alliance represents a version of Austro. Um, certainly, a very prominent version of what Austro was like back in the the eighties or the nineties. Um, any of the Universalist outfits that would tell you that they're Austro, I, I would dispute that claim very heavily. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm sure there's any other small number of groups that I'm unaware of that probably authentically practice too. Right. Now, the actual phrase or term, though, Asatru, that was coined by McNallan, yeah? He found it in a book, and I'm trying to remember the name of the book that he read that uh, put a name to it. It was a book that he read back in the late 60s, maybe around 1970, but you'd have to check with Steve. Mm -hmm. But it was a a book describing the religion of the Vikings and it was described as Ausatru. And so he used that term. I know they use that term in Iceland as well. And I think they started using it around the same time. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that makes sense. Now you personally, uh, from what I understand, you have been involved in Ausatru for some time, obviously given your position in the organization. Uh, but like most people, I also don't think that you were born into this. You know, it's, it's something that you found. You want to give us a background on that? Well, yeah, real quick. What's really cool to watch happen in the Austro Folk Assembly now is we're having kids. We're starting to have teenagers that are becoming adults that were born into it, which is a really nice thing to say because, you know, people, people my age and older, that's not the case. Um, my family, I guess, was... Christian because you had to check a box, but they were never very religious. You know, they didn't really practice. Um, As I grew up, I always felt that I had a spiritual need. I felt there was something there that I needed. And, you know, being, being a white young man in the United States of America, I thought those are my options. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Jew. I'm not, you know, so that's not open to me. I'm, I'm not a Muslim. Okay. I'm not Indian. So I can't be a Hindu or a Buddhist. What do we got? So I kind of picked through that, and I I was pretty serious with it for a while. I, I picked up my Bible and I read it through about four different times because a lot of stuff didn't didn't fit well. But you assume you know if God says one thing and you say something else, you're probably the one wrong. So I went back and checked it out for quite a while. Um, I spent a lot of time growing up with you know, in my later teenage years, and I guess my early adult years with my aunt, my cousins, she was very devout Jehovah's Witness. One thing I would give those people, 
they know their Bibles. Mm-hmm. They, and the cool thing that I genuinely respect about the Jehovah's Witnesses, and there's probably some other denominations that do it as well, but they went through and they took out all the pagan elements of Christianity that make it fun and exciting for European people. And they threw all those away. And so theirs is, seems like a much more accurate representation of what, you know, the church that Paul intended would look like today. And that really helped me make a clear understanding of, of where I wanted to be and where I didn't. Um, it got to a point when I was, I took it real serious when I was about 18 or 19, I got baptized as a Jehovah's witness. I went door to door a little bit. I was one of those guys. I had a conversation the other day with one on my deck. (laughs) You know, go big or go home. If you believe it and you're going to try to do it, you got to go with your whole heart. And that's what I tried hard to do. And at that time it, it occurred to me that everything that a young man wants to do is sinful in the antithesis of what Jesus would have you do. And something else that helped me a lot around that time was the, uh, like the Christian bookstore kind of Christians had the whole, what would Jesus do thing? Right. So I started looking at things in my life in terms of what would Jesus do? And very often what would Jesus do and what's the right thing to do weren't the same and didn't match up. Right. So, you know, I tried, I tried hard to beat that square peg into the round hole as much as I could, but I realized at some point that it was dishonest. And if, if the, the Christian God was omnipotent and knew what was in my heart, then I'm not going to just be a hypocrite. I'm not going to fool God by saying one thing and believing another. Right. And it really got me thinking. And I came to a point which was terrifying for me because I believed in it. But their God was so opposed to the things that I believe in and such a bad person, for lack of a better term, Literally thinking that the only option was their God or not, not was pretty scary. Right. And I made that decision that I couldn't stand with their God because he was just a bad person. And uh, that's why the story of King Radbod always really stood out to me because he was putting his foot in the baptismal font. He was about ready to sacrifice all the old gods, whatever, where my ancestors and when told they were all burning in hell, he said, I'd, I'd rather burn in hell with my ancestors than go to heaven with a parcel of beggars and I'm out. And that's kind of where I felt like I was. So I, I departed from Christianity and I, I still had that spiritual need inside of me. I knew there was something out there bigger. And so I was, okay, well, I know Christianity is not native to, to my people. It's not native to, to Europeans. So what did we have before? And then I started discovering, and it was funny because at first I thought I was the only weirdo that was doing this. I was, I was by myself, but I wanted to research things and I figured I'd get, um, you know, old primary sources, what we call today, the lore, but I was Googling things and I found, you know, this, this guy, Steve McNallan and this group, the house true folk assembly. And there was other people actually doing this in real life and they weren't a bunch of freaks. And I was shocked and amazed. And that was kind of the start of my journey. And that was 2001. Right, right. So that's some time. And I guess, you know, uh, fast forwarding from there or through from there to, to now, it was just a matter of becoming a more, um, a, a more significant, uh, playing a more significant role in the church. And is that how you would refer to it, to the, to the church? It is. And, and, you know, that's off-putting to some people, but certainly here in the United States, it has a meaning. Right. And when you tell people, Oh, what were you doing? Oh, I was with my uh, 
my group, my national organization of people. Right. Nobody knows what that is. And they turn you off. Oh, I was at a church event. Oh, really? What'd you guys do? Right. It, it has that word and it has that meaning. And honestly, churches derive from, you know, from a European word anyway. It's not, it's not a, a Hebrew term. Right, right. So, my, personally, and I don't know if, if like, you've ever heard my story, but it's a lot of parallels in, uh, in that I went from, I was also raised by a, a non-religious Christian family. And from as early as I can remember, I had a more atheistic uh, worldview. Because uh, I went to Catholic school. We were raised Catholic. And I was baptized. I did communion. Uh, the sacrament after that is, con- uh, is uh, confirmation. You're confirmed. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you actually exist. <laughs> you find out later in life, right? So I, I, didn't, I never did the confirmation. At that point, I was already saying, no, this isn't for me. I don't agree with this. I don't, like, this is nonsense. And, and I had a very rebellious, you know, attitude towards it. That continued. I think, and developed into a hardline anti-theist uh, by the time I was in my uh, 20s and even early 30s. And uh, it got to the point where, similar to you, where you were like, you know, I was all in with Christianity and, and then I had to basically just go against that. Well, I was the guy who was like in the early internet forum days, I had a legendary uh, thread on this a prominent forum in the uh, martial arts community. And the thread was Chim Chim's atheist thread. And it was just religion bashing. Um, And I ran that for years. And then I had children. And then I started realizing as my mission developed that there were things that just didn't make sense. Uh, there 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 were answers that, I would never, that I knew I was opting out of pursuing because the questions had to be asked from a certain perspective. And that perspective wasn't one I was willing to, to put on. And, you know, own, my own personal experiences as they sort of evolved and I started, you know, reassessing what was important to me and what I've always known to be true. Uh, I was introduced to the Eddas by a friend of mine in passing. And the reading of it, it's like, this, it felt like it was my crew. Like, wait a minute, these guys, I know these guys, this is, this is what I'm saying. Like, where are these guys? These are the guys who are looking at things the way that, that felt uh, familiar to me and natural to me from as long as I can remember, but it was very much a, a, an individual journey. Well, to this day, and I am somebody who has had very, very uh, skeptical, uh, I should say I have a very skeptical perspective of groups and organizations. So one of the things like with the AFA that has always, that has always, you know, given me a, a sort of pause, meaning I didn't want to go past a certain point of acceptance or rejection because I knew nothing about it, obviously, uh, was how does a spiritual endeavor a pure spiritual endeavor not succumb to the bureaucracies the administrative obstacles you know my you know again going according to a lot of my my framework and and philosophies an organization always has two missions Uh, first is the mission it was founded for 
and the second is staying alive, right? So you'll see that with a lot of government agencies. It's, it starts off with the best of intentions, but before long, people have to keep their jobs. So the problem they were, were hired to solve can never end or else they lose their job, you know? And, and just as a, a, you know, a, a, an example of, of, of that idea. But in the AFA, how do you, how does one, but you're the guy, so how do you avoid becoming the bureaucracy? How do you avoid becoming the, you know, the, the guy that I see on 3 a.m. in the Christian church with the Lamborghini? You know, like, how does, how does that not happen? Well, I think that there's... I think there's things that are fundamentally different that help it not happen. First, I'm not turning down Lamborghinis, but I don't see a lot of those coming my way. Um, but secondly, when you create an organization to react against something or to fix a problem, then you're right. That problem has to continue to exist in order for that organization to have value. So you look for it everywhere and you, it becomes a little bit corrupted by that. One of the things that's important to me about the AFA is we're all about building. We're not about tearing something down. So you'll have groups that are all about, you know, women's liberation or this and that. Once you get to a certain point, what do you do? Well, then I think you start reaching for problems. Right. I'm not trying to bring down the patriarchy. Right. I'm trying to build stuff that's spiritually relevant for our folk. And I think as long as, as long as there's, um, you know, the sons and daughters of Europe exist, we'll have spiritual needs that hopefully I can help provide for now and that we can build the AFA in a way that it'll provide for then. But we're trying to, to build up our folk and make our folk strong and successful. And I think there's always a need for that. Certainly we got to run, we got to keep the lights on and we've got to do a lot of administrative things. And I don't see anything fundamentally wrong with that. I think that one thing is important with the gods of Austria is we're about winning, not about putting it all on, leaving it all to God and maybe we'll store up treasures in heaven. No, we're going to try to build an important and a lasting legacy here now in Midgard. Part of that is making what we have successful. And so there's always a certain amount of, of administrative things that need to be done, but I don't find that fundamentally in conflict with spiritual pursuit. You, know, you mentioned early in a, in a purely spiritual endeavor. One of the things I like about Alcatru is it's not purely spiritual. It makes all things spiritual. It's like, it's not, all right, here's everyday, you know, work, family, stuff, time, and then on Sunday we go to the Hof and practice Austria. Austria should incorporate all the things you do in your life, in how you work, in how you successfully structure an organization. One of the other things, the Aesir are gods of order and of structure. Odin literally took the chaos that surrounded him and formed reality out of it, and formed order and structure. So I think administering an orderly hierarchical church organization is very much in keeping with the principles of Alcatraz and in providing order in a world that we see is very chaotic. All right. Solid. So something you touched on and something that I brought up with uh, Steve McNallan when he was on is the folk folkish versus universal perspectives of Asatru, of Odinism, 
Um, my particular take, and I am in a very, I would say, unique in this context, not unique generally, but I'm of a mixed, you know, uh, heritage. And one of the things I recall hearing from my mother growing up, so my mother, Irish, Italian, my father, born and raised in Puerto Rico, uh, he a lot more mixed than, than my mother. And I always heard from my mother, well, you have, you know, you have the best of both worlds. You have, you know, and, you know, it was, it was great. And obviously she's my mom. I love my mom. Right. But she didn't grow up like I grew up. So when I was with the white kids, I was the Puerto Rican kid. When I was with the Puerto Rican kids, I was the white boy. And so it was this, I was very conscious of this growing up. And I think that's the, the greater point that, that I'm making first is that I was always very conscious um, just functionally from a very young age about race and about ethnic groups and about cultures. And it's, it's funny because as my younger brother, and I do have a younger brother and I grew up, um, I have always gravitated toward and connected toward, you know, more toward uh, my European blooded family, whereas my brother uh, didn't. You know, and, and he and I, and you see us and, you know, we, we look very similar. We act very similar. You know, he is my little brother, uh, but our identities are, are very uh, different. They're very varied. So when the, the conversation of universal versus Volkish, you know, started, you know, coming to the forefront of the Asa true uh, world, you know, at, at least represented in, in social media and, and such, mm-hmm. like I got it. I understood it. And my whole thing, and, and again, I brought it up with, with Steve McDowell, and he definitely had a lot to say about it, a lot of productive, strong stuff to say about it. He said, you know, why would you not want to connect with the people, you know, with the gods of your people? Why would you want to connect with the gods of other peoples? And so I get it. And, you know, and, and the reason I'm, I'm saying this before you give me your thing is anybody, because I'm sure they're going to be haters, just, of course. just hanging on every one of your words. And I want to put out there, as somebody who is of a mixed heritage, who has the last name Garcia, whose father looked like Morgan Freeman by the time the middle of the summer came. Like, I am somebody who understands that there is, is, is almost a, an illogical uh, uh, slant on the person that says it doesn't matter, you know, who your, your people's gods were. And you could pretty much, and my whole thing is, you know, we talk about the black Viking, right? On the podcast, we've talked about that before. as sort of like an archetype, you know, the black Viking. My whole thing is, you know, you could do whatever the hell you want, but don't get mad when nobody accepts you. You know, like, and that's the whole thing. Like, you, yeah, do whatever the hell you want, but you want entry into this group. And that's where the problem comes in. And I think people should respect and honor other individuals' identities. Um, and part of that is including the identities that don't welcome yours into their group. And it needn't be something uh, uh, controversial or violent or, you know, even you know, having any animus or, or malice. It just, it's just what makes sense, you know? So all that being said, what's your uh, or AFA's take on that as of, as of 2019? That's a uh, broad question. Um, in specific, and I kind of touched on this earlier, I think there's an authentic way to practice Alsa True, and I think that there's ways that are inauthentic. And I think that the universalist perspective is extremely inauthentic. And I think that for a lot of different reasons, 
because it doesn't it doesn't just include their folkish stance or not. It goes with a whole other social justice packaging. Tranny Vikings. They have all of that in there. It used to be they liked the Tranny Vikings, and that was cool to have one. Right. Now it's almost you've got to be a Tranny Viking or they don't like you. <laughs> um, and that's evolved pretty, rapid, pretty rapidly. Um, no, I, I like your, your take that you said. Um, it's about trying to enter somebody's group. Groups have standards that they are completely entitled to set. Nobody's out trying to tell them they can't do what they're going to do. It's ironic because the forces of tolerance are the only ones out there trying to tell other people what they can't do. Um, people are going to connect with the divine in the ways that give them the most meaning. And, uh, yeah, I think it's authentic for all peoples to look to the gods of their ancestors and pursue spirituality in that way. You're right. It puts, it puts folks like yourself in a difficult spot because mm-hmm. if, it's, if it's a mixed ancestry, which way do you go? Because each group doesn't accept you're not quite one of them, and it makes it really tricky. So, I mean, that's obviously a challenge for a lot of people. But what I think is that's an understandable challenge. What I don't feel is a challenge, but I feel is a mental illness, is if you're straight from Norway and that's your ancestors since the dawn of time, but all of a sudden you want to go, you know, practice tribal Central African religion, right. it begs the question, why? You know, what's going on within you that you feel the need to get your validation out there? And I think that's, a, that's an important question that I wish more people would, would explore and think about. Right, right, right on. And I agree. I, uh, you know, my whole thing was, I remember there was an episode of the, of the pressure project that I did called pure blood nonsense. And one of the things that I spoke about in that episode was, you know, there are going to be people who, cause as somebody of mixed heritage, you know, the people who would, when I would grow up and they would say, well, you know, you're not part of my group because you're mixed. I would say, well, by that logic, I'm part of no group then. Right. So I'm, I'm my own group. I'm a different group. I'm, so I very early on stopped trying to get into groups that like didn't welcome me. Like I don't fucking mm-hmm. like, I'll do my own thing because it is, I would say a winning attitude. Right. Yeah. And I would draw the, the distinction between somebody who has an attitude of I'm going to make my way and build my, you know, build my tribe organically functionally from scratch, if need be, Rather than being the people of, you know, you see what's happening in Europe now. Well, these are people that, you know, they all have the, the pure blood. Why is it that they're welcoming, you know, these, these invaders? Why are they sabotaging the, you know, the, the beautiful history of, of their peoples and, you know, their, their cultures and, you know, their languages and their, you know, their religions? And why is this being sabotaged? So the, my point being, anybody could succumb to weak thinking. And when you embrace strength, you embrace strength in a way that's most functionally authentic for you as an individual. Um, and I think that is a, a huge struggle that people have these days. You know, like it's not about, you know, I want to be uh, an asatura because they represent strength, but how would you, how would you represent strength? Would it be with asatura? Would it be with your native, you know, people's religion? Like, why are you trying to just put on a, 
ironically, a strength shirt, right? Instead of actually becoming strong. You know what I mean? Well, I think that's a really important point, And I think it touches on something that I think is a little bit broader. When people see other people doing better than them or having things they want, the solution is to take it away or tear it down or make the other person less. So by default, you're objectively more. And, you know, that attitude is weak and it's disgusting, but it's very common today. You know, if I see someone who has more or is doing better than me, it makes me want to do better. It makes me want to rise to that challenge and become more myself. I wish more people would do that. I wish more people all over would do that when they see a problem. When they see someone that has something they want, well, go out and make that. Go out and build that. Don't not allow anyone to have nice things because you're not willing to step up and establish that for yourself. Right. And I think that comes into play in a lot of things, not just, not just Alistair, but I think it's a, it's a spiritual principle that people lost a lot. It's kind of a, it's a communist thing of let's, let's make everybody equal by bringing everyone down to the lowest level. Right. Right. Least common denominator. And I think it's uh, you know, I, I have this, this uh, paradigm called the aquarium, you know, and I think a lot of people nowadays don't realize that they live in an aquarium and in a functional reality where we're thrust into dealing with nature and natural law alone, everything tends to sort itself out pretty quickly. You know, if you're the guy who is the, um, you know, crazy racist, black people are niggers, black people this, black people, and you are on an island and it's you and a black guy, and the only way that you're going to survive is make you are going to, you're going to find a way to build a bridge and become functional. So I think the person who is completely anti other races, and I'll use that as the category, um, or races don't exist on the other end, I think they functionally have, or I should, yeah, I should say they have the same level of dysfunction. I think when we navigate reality and we look at what works, we look at what allows people to pursue their individual, you know, preferences, uh, but while still surviving, you know, uh, functionally, I think those are the formulas that all of our ancestors, no matter where you came from, had to develop. Uh, it had to work. And nowadays we lose sight of the aquarium effect, whereas a reality and a, a sense of security and safety is provided for you. Uh, and you want to sort of make, you know, the wheel rounder. You know, I found a way to make a rounder wheel. Uh, and you have to listen to me. Uh, well, the impetus for needing one was never there. Uh, it's just people are looking for, I guess, significance, looking for things to do. And they wind up, you know, throwing around accusations like racist and homophobic. And, um, and I've gotten them all. I know you have also. Um, I was called by a little white lady in D.C. a few years back. I had gone to the MPI conference in uh, D.C., and uh, Richard Spencer's conference, and I was outside, and it's the first interaction I ever had with Antifa. I had no idea who Antifa was, right? And I remember going into this event, and uh, this little white lady called me a white supremacist. <laughs> and, I, and I did like the whole, you know, like, who, me? And she goes, yeah, you're, and she goes, they're, they're holding a white supremacist uh, meeting in that building. 
And I told her, no, 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 I'm going to the MPI conference. And she was like, that's the one. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, and she's sitting there and I'm like, you know, you know, I'm, my last name's Garcia. My father's from Puerto Rico and I grew up in the South Bronx. Like you're calling me a white supremacist. <laughs> like you're a little blonde lady. Like, have you ever, have you ever been in a fight in your life? Have you ever like, like, what is, what is your connection to being able to qualify you to, to, to call me that? And it was, it was just ridiculous. It was a joke. Uh, but it was my first experience seeing how delusional people could be. And, and I had to admit that I was almost in a bubble uh, growing up where I grew up in because super liberal New York City, super liberal, you know, and I didn't realize until I was much older and had a little bit more of a cultured perspective on things, just how indoctrinated I was, you know. And it was, yeah, cops are all bad. You know, the uh, rich white men ruin everything, you know, the like, and there was just this, this list of, you know, things that we never questioned growing up where I grew up. And as I grew up, I realized that wasn't the case. You know, I recall going into the, uh, the building uh, after, you know, navigating the, the Antifa and there was a black guy and a black lady there and they were like in the information part of the building, like, so I went up to them and I said, excuse me, do you guys know where the conference is being held? <laughs> and, you know, they're sitting there and <laughs> the, the lady goes, what conference? <laughs> and I said, you know what conference. <laughs> and she said, well, if you registered for it, you could find it yourself. <laughs> I said, okay, fair enough. I said, by the way, this is the stuff we're going to be talking about upstairs. <laughs> Just fucking with her, right? And uh, I remember walking down the hallway and the uh, I pressed the button for the elevator. I was like, I guess I'll just find it. And when the elevator opened, a bunch of guys are at the conference. Um, looked and went, oh, Master Chen, what's up? And I, I looked back at the lady and I said, found it. You know, thanks. You know, but <laughs> it's it's one of these things where, you know, people are unwilling to, number one, have the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and number two, be willing to acknowledge that, you guys might not have the same position at the end of this. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody just might not share your preferences, you know, and, and that's okay. You know, just because I love me doesn't mean I hate you. You know, I've been saying that for a while now. And, uh, and I think, you know, when you look at the controversy that I've seen as an outsider that AFA has gone through, it's, mm-hmm. it's purely that. It's like you're hating this group because they love themselves, and they don't want you to, they're, they're not extending, you know, themselves to you the way that you feel they should, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's, I think you're spot on with it. I think there's certain people that are very comfortable with who they are and comfortable in their own skin. And then I think you, you have a situation in the world we live in today where there's a lot of people that are uncomfortable in their own skin and rather than fix the things that make them uncomfortable or come to terms with them or whatever they need to do, it's easier and more socially available to try to force you to provide them validation. You know, you don't just have to let them be to do whatever they want to do. No, you have to praise them and acknowledge that whatever they're doing is superior to what you're doing. And that's, that's a bridge too far. Um, with any of the things that get thrown around, it's very funny because if people go to an AFA event, there's not a lot of hate going on. There's a lot of, there's a lot of hugging. There's, there's some crying. There's some naming babies and having weddings. And there's, there's, there's not a lot of hate that goes on. It's just people that, that have a certain 
certain set of things we find acceptable within our group and things we don't within our group. And unfortunately, other people just can't allow that to exist in the same world they live in. And that's, that's kind of a sad statement as to where we're at. Right, right. How has the AFA grown um, since it was first uh, founded and more recently? Exponentially. That's how we've grown. No, we're doing fantastic right now and uh, grown in a lot of ways, I guess, since it was founded. Uh, you talked to Steve and originally it was founded as the Austro Free Assembly way back in 1972. And that went under, you know, a number of different changes and kind of dissolved in the, uh, in the late 80s. Uh, the AFA, as we know it now, was founded in 1995. And the next year, we're about to celebrate 25 years. And it's, it's grown in a lot of ways. Um, when it first started out, there was a real need for... When we say it in 2019, the, the word reenactment sounds funny. But at a certain stage of development, we needed to look to the past to reconnect with something. And one of the ways that we've grown is we're kind of past that phase. We don't have the Viking dress-up thing. It's, it's not really about trying to be them. It's authentically being us. Um, one of the other, one of the cool ways that we've grown that I've pointed out a lot in the last two years, I'd say, is the number of women and families. Anyone who was around Ausatru back in, you know, the 90s, early 2000s, there's a lot of guys. It's a lot of single guys. And, you know, maybe somebody would bring some strange looking wicked chick that they found. But in general, it was a lot of guys. Right. Now it's a lot of nice looking families, women, little kids, babies. Um, one of the cool things the AFA has been doing is the baby blanket project. And uh, my wife's been a big part of that. A uh, member of ours in Florida named Janet's been a huge part of making that happen. But every new baby born in the AFA, the ladies of the AFA make them their own baby blanket and send them to them. That's awesome. Well, it's cool because one of the other things it does is it keeps kind of a running list. We've got like 17 babies like in the oven or just out right now to make blankets for just so far this year. And it's been really nice. Uh, one of the members of, of my Witten and I, he was asking, he said, when was the last time you saw an AFA event that didn't, you know, a group picture that didn't either, either have a babe in arms or a pregnant lady in it. And I can't think of one. Right. So the family thing has grown huge. Um, one thing, and, I, and I've, I catch a little bit of grief for it sometimes, but we've also tried to professionalize our appearance a little bit. We talked earlier about I use the word church. One of the things that goes with it is dressing a certain way, acting a certain way, and presenting ourselves with a certain amount of reverence. A lot of things in Ossetru have evolved from being kind of a Viking-themed backyard barbecue. And don't get me wrong, I don't say it disparagingly, that's a lot of fun. But taking that and making it a church weekend making it something you're doing spiritually. So our people, you know, dress a certain way, carry themselves a certain way. One of the cool things when you dress nice and you try to look nice, put your chest up, put your, you know, put your chin up, hold your head high. It, it really affects how you do things. And I think it affects how we approach the divine. And I think we've really felt that with the successes we've had. One of the other huge ways that we've grown. Um, one project for a website I've been working on is archiving the old issues of the Rune Stone. For anybody who doesn't know, that was a publication the AFA had in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, 
And it kind of talked about where we were at. And in these articles, I was reading back in the 70s, one of these days we'll have a Hoff. One of these days we're going to have some land and we're going to have Hoff and it's all going to be glorious. That was like 1973 was that article. But in 2015, we finally got that Hoff. And that's been a real big game changer because we have our own. What is a Hoff? Okay, for anybody, I get used to talking to a lot of people that (laughs) have commonalities. For anybody in your audience, a Hoff is basically our word for a church building, a temple Mm -hmm. uh, to our gods. And previously to that, there's a lot of people that will call different things Hoff. They'll get a shed from Home Depot and put it up in their backyard and decorate it. And I'm not taking anything away. That's great. That's a really cool step. But what I'm talking about, about Odenshoff in California, is a building that the community and people would recognize as a, this is a place of worship. And so we finally have that. And that's been a really special thing. We're able to pay off the mortgage on that in just three three and a half years. So that was awesome. And we're already right now scouting out and getting ready to get the second off. So that's been a really cool progress. Something else that's happened with the AFA and kind of in the way that it's grown. A lot more members and a lot bigger geographical spread. For a time, there was a couple pockets where we had really strong AFA communities and then the rest was was kind of no man's land. Now we've got we've got AFA members in just about every state We've got thriving communities all around the country, but something else, internationally, we've got a lot of members. We've got a kindred in Canada. We've got a kindred in Australia. We just got a kindred in um, South Africa, which is fantastic. That's awesome. We've got that going down there, and they're very enthusiastic folks. Um, Got three kindreds in Sweden, and we have a kindred in Italy. Hmm. And we've got members in 14 different countries, so... We've really, we've really grown. I think we've grown spiritually, we've grown geographically, and certainly we've grown numerically. But one of the other cool things that one of our members was commenting on: usually, you you have to sacrifice quality for quantity. We've been really blessed that as our quantity's grown, our quality's grown and kept pace. And uh, so we're really living in a good time for the AFA, and it's been it's been really special to see that. And and I, I really do. I think it's a it's a great thing. One of the things you you touched on was family, and how families is so important. And and I know you and and your wife. You know, I remember I was doing some research in preparation for this interview, and a few years back it was. I, I think Mandy was referred to as your lovely mate or your <laughs> lovely like so like that. So it's it's great to see everybody's progressing along. But I remember even being at um, the MPI conference, right? a few years back and a lot of people who are, you know, Asatruers, a heathen, Odinist, you know, whatever they classify themselves, but basically under the same category, uh, generally, none of them had any kids, you know, and I, from the, 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 the time I being a teenager, I've wanted a large family. And one of the, the, the motivations for wanting that large family for me was always because if we're doing good things, strong things, productive things, we need, you know, numbers. We need to support that. We need to make sure that the things that we believe in are represented and we have the people who can participate in that at a high level. Did I lose you there, Matt? Oh, no, I'm here. Um, can you hear me? I can hear you. You're, All right. You're my in- camera just looks like it's frozen. Yeah, it'll probably reset. Um, okay. But, uh, you know, the, the big thing is 
nobody had any children. And when I look at a lot of people who are looked at nowadays as I would say uh, leaders or influencers in, in the realm of Asatru, heathenism, Odinism, uh, I see that, you know, the, the, the value of family is not always put forward, you know, and, that was a, a great contrast to see <clears throat> AFA in that it was something that you guys felt was significant and you guys, you know, the proof is in the pudding, you know, just like you said, the pictures, there's babies and women in the pictures and it's not, you know, a cool guy biker club. It's not a, a bunch of angry guys who just, you know, want to rail against, you know, how rough life is and, and such. And, or any other permutation of that, you know? So I, I think that was something that was very endearing uh, that I found about the AFA, you know, as, a, as an outside observer. Um, another thing that I wanted to ask about was, uh, you're still there, yeah? Yeah, I'm here. I've noticed my camera hasn't changed, but I'm here, I'm with you. You know what, why don't you just uh, do me a favor, disconnect and reconnect, because I'm gonna have to keep asking. Yeah, I think you're turning your camera on and off maybe. Okay, hey. is this working? Yep, you're there. All right. <laughs> or else I'd have to ask every couple of seconds, you're still there? No, no worries. No worries. So another, another thing that I want to ask about, and I recently had a, a friend, Jamie Martin, on, uh, who was talking, you know, I was asking him about his experiences with the, the law. And, you know, one of the things that really made me or motivated me to have him on was, you know, through his social media presence, I found that he was somebody who was very well educated. I had a lot to say, you know, read all the things that I either had just haven't read or didn't have the inclination to read. And so he's a good source of information. Since I have you on a big thing that I, I get into with uh, Christians and I am not anti-Christian. Uh, there are too many people who have too much overlap with my life's missions to, you know, to, to disregard or, or disconnect from uh, Christ, Christians. People identify themselves as Christians. But one of the things that I get, uh, in my own, you know, spiritual pursuits is, well, you know, the, the Bible gives us morality. The, the Bible tells us what is good and what is bad. And, um, and I contrast that personally with, well, what is good and bad is functional. It's organic. It's, you know, a lot of times we don't need it codified what we should be doing. You know, it's like, I remember I used to be a personal trainer and, uh, and one of the things that I always get from uh, fat people is, well, what should I eat? And I'd start off. The first part of that was, first of all, you know what you're not supposed to fucking be eating, right? So we could talk about maximizing the strategy, but if you have the, you know, the cheeseburger at 3 a.m., probably not, you know? So I think when it comes to morality, a lot of it is, is covered by what is functional, and what we know to be, you know, functional. Uh, in Asatru, uh, in the lore, how do you, you know, comment on you know where morality is to be found is it found in law is it organic inherent you know what, what say you well i want to i want to go back and build on your personal trainer analogy because i think i think that's important personal trainers it's funny because you wouldn't think you would need them right. like you said you know what you're supposed to eat you know what you're not supposed to eat we can google right now and i can find your workout routine what do you need a trainer for but one of the things you need a trainer for is first somebody who can be an example and for accountability. It's, it's really different when you make me a meal plan and tell me what I can and can't eat 
than if I'm out there by myself making the decisions and I can cut myself a lot of slack. It's different when you have accountability. One of the things that I think is really cool about Alcitru in general, and I'll get to the lore question in a second because I, I do remember that, but the accountability of a group, we all understand a certain amount of morality is inherent. Um, but when you have a group of people, you got to look in the eye that have heard what you said, seen what you've done, and can hold you to a standard of whether or not they think you're somebody worthy of respect or not. That matters. Peer pressure, you know, I, I listen to your show sometimes and, and peer pressure is a thing and it can be a very good thing when used towards noble ends. That's right. And I think that's something really important that Austru provides. One of the things that the Lord provides is examples. It provides heroes in a way that you can see these people exhibiting these virtues that we talk about. And you can read stories of great people doing great things. One of the reasons I really like reading biographies much more than I like reading fiction. Because in fiction, your heroes have no challenges. You can, you can create the story and the narrative however you want to make them come out on top. When you read biographies of actual people that have done inspirational things, it shows you what someone you know, similar to yourself could do if they applied themselves. And I think that the Lord gives us a lot of examples of people applying themselves. I think on a deeper level, um, one of the things that I love about the Eddas and some of the lore in that way, like the sagas are really good for inspiration. When you read the Eddas and, and things like that, it's neat because they're like an onion with how layered they are. And I find this myself, you know, it's old hat. I've read the Eddas. I read those, you know, 20 years ago. But every, every so often when I go back and reread something, I get blown away by something I didn't pick up the first time. So they're very deep and can be read on many different layers. And they're cool because they're accessible to children. If you read them as a child, you get an interesting story. You learn something. You know, I don't presume that Thor is literally some buff, red-haired dude that drives a chariot. But if you're a child and you read that, you come to understand who Thor is better. Right. Well, the more you read in the Eddas, the more you pick up on deeper, deeper truths. And I think that's something special we have that uh, the Bible may not have in that way. It's got very truths that are in your face. Do this, don't do that, which is really useful. Um, but the Eddas have, you can keep going and there's layers of truth and there's truth that builds upon truth. It's not meant to be literal truth, but it tells truth in a lot of different ways and a lot of different layers. Um, so I think it gives, it gives us that in a, in a certain way. One of the things about the nine noble virtues that's kind of our list of, of some do's and don'ts, but it's really not. It's a list of do's, mm -hmm. which I think is cool. It's not telling you all the things not to do. It's telling you standards to hold yourself to and traits that our community finds acceptable or uh, worthy of praise. That's picked up through, through action. You talked about practicality being the test of, of a lot of values. Well, I think our virtues teach that in a, in a very upfront way. Those are things that you use to structure a strong self, to structure a strong community, and to build a strong people. And that can only be done by using those values and, and putting them into practice. Would you mind going over them briefly, if, if only just listing them? 
You know, I um one of the things with uh, that I like I've done an an, uh, an episode, a two part episode on uh, on the nine noble virtues, and I don't know if the AFA uses the same that was formulated by the Odinic right, or if you have <coughs> your own uh, slant on it. But one of the things that was prominent in those episodes that I made was everything that you're saying. <coughs> that this is a a proactive, you know. Um, uh, basically a, a formula blueprint for strong, honorable living. Uh, and it isn't the rules of a game that uh, somebody's handing down to you where, you know, you don't necessarily see the purpose or function. You just know that I want to follow the rules. Um, this, you know, the, you know, the Odinic rights, the nine noble virtues was a, a list of things that would take any person and allow them to become better, a better version of themselves, you know? Well, and, and I'll list them here in a sec, but one of the things that you touch on that's really important is that they're principles and not situationally dependent. They're not, you know, you should do X on Sunday, but you shouldn't do Y on Friday. Right. They're a list of principles that should guide your actions and how you interact. And so, yes, we do use the, uh, the same list of nine noble virtues that the Odinic Rite uh, came up with, and I wish I could just bust out the year that they came up with them, but they've kind of guided Asatru for a long time, and, and we do honor them. Now, different people use a little bit different words for the same thing sometimes, depending on what you read, but the nine noble virtues are courage, discipline, fidelity, honor, hospitality, industriousness, perseverance, self-reliance, and truth. And, you know, not only are those all good things that would take anybody and make them better, but they build upon each other and they build a synergy. They act in concert with each other. And so I think that's a, a very simple but a very powerful blueprint in being a more noble version of yourself. Right. Right. Right on. Uh, I agree. You know, I, uh, you know, I raised <coughs> my, my sons, you know, know the nine noble virtues. My sons have, at least my older two have uh, read uh, the Eddas. It's a, it's a topic of conversation in my house. Um, there are rituals that we perform, but again, you know, a lot of this is, is uh, you know, I fall into the category of the guy who uh, I wouldn't say is having the Viking barbecue in the back. Um, I don't drink, but I am certainly the guy who has, you know, from the onset of this particular leg of my journey, uh, has pursued uh, truths as I found them to be relevant. And, and I tried to stay honest to myself, you know, during this process. But speaking of the nine noble virtues specifically, it's something that I found have been a great blueprint. Um, and I know there's some who uh, I know Jamie that I had on before and other people that I've spoken to uh, don't uh, subscribe to it because ascribe or subscribe, whichever word is more appropriate there uh, to it because uh, it was generated by the Odinic, right? You know, it wasn't something that was a, you know, necessarily okay. in the, the things. What's your take so, on that? Well, so let me put this out there. Cause I think it's interesting. Um, you get a certain segment of folks that, spend all their time focusing on the lore or archaeology or their to them i think in their head they construct that the more faithfully you can reproduce 
reenacting, you know, eighth century Vikings that has some spiritual significance. Right. And, you know, there's, there's certainly things that are time honored are important and valuable, but the Vikings didn't you know, dress up like cavemen to be more spiritual. And I wonder what they think fundamentally happened, you know, in the year 800 that gave one of their Gothies the significant authority to say something that we wouldn't have today. Right. Like was, was Olaf the Viking in Trondheim back in 840 somehow uh, have more spiritual authenticity to acknowledge that courage and discipline and the industriousness are valuable. He was and, from the street. He kept it real. <laughs> he kept it real. Well, so I think that's important though. Because rather than pretending that we're ancient Vikings, we're keeping it real. Right. And these truths are valuable. You can go back and look at our lore. They've always been valuable to, to the European folk, to the, to the Aryan peoples. These were always noble principles. Mm -hmm. And to codify them in you know the 1970s or 80s, we're, we're moving forward. That's, that's how we ought to do. We're so stagnant that our value system has to be based on trying to role play being a Viking. Then, then it's just a fun, you know, why not have the Viking barbecue in the backyard and just reenact? Cause at that point we're not living a faith We're we're trying to be reenactors and there's a time and a place for that, but that's, it's not an authentic spiritual journey to me. You know, and, and I, uh, I agree. I think the, the logic is sound, first off. I remember I had um, uh, Paul Wagner on of the, the, the werewolves, the wolves, uh, the wolves of Vinland. I don't, they're not called the werewolves. That's ridiculous. Uh, the wolves of Vinland. And, <laughs> and, uh, but one of the things that he, he said that I think was, was perfect, and, and you, you know, reiterated it, it's, you know, it's about creating <clears throat> who we are, connecting to you know, how we see the gods and our relationship with them, not necessarily reflecting that somebody else's relationship with the gods, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, I, I agree wholeheartedly, you know, and, and also to the, to the charge that, you know, this isn't part of the lore. It's, well, wasn't the lore written by somebody? Of, yeah, it is now. Like, it, it's kind of like, this is how we make lore, right? You know, yeah, like, it's part of the modern lore. Right. Right. And, uh, and I think, and I think that's, that's fair. That's valid. I understand, you know, obviously uh, both perspectives, but um, I also, as somebody who's very skeptical and mm -hmm. like, I got trust issues, Matt, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> I got some serious trust issues. And you know, when somebody's dead, it's like, they really can't fuck me over. So things that they've written, you know, like it kind of, it is what it is. Um, but I've met many a charlatan <laughs> in my time. And uh, so I get the skepticism. Mm -hmm. I think to a certain level it's healthy, but I also think with this specifically, I think there's a valid uh, uh, a case for, well, this is the modern lore, you know? And mm -hmm. is, if you can't say that this is uh, in conflict with the lore, then why would you, you know, put up a resistance against it? You know what I mean? Well, it's, there's a difference between your, when you're looking at this as a real thing, and when you're analyzing it as an obscure point of historical trivia, 
And I think that when you contemplate it as an actual faith and not just some strange thing Vikings did, it prompts you to make some of those decisions and to think about it. Mm. Um, at some point in the way back, the Gothies that had the trust of their community made decisions for their folk of what was right, what was wrong, and what was healthy for their people. When people accepted those and saw they were beneficial and those lasted over time, they become codified and something that, that was agreed upon. One of the cool things about the nine noble virtues, one of the reasons that I don't try to remake them or, you know, no, this is the special, you know, Matt Flavel remix is because they have been around and they've served us really well and they are time honored. They're not, they're not ancient, but you know, they're 50 years old and they're, they're really nice things. And certainly we can add to them over time. We can build upon them. But we always need to be building and striving for something better. That's something that uh, that we've always done is strive to achieve more, to innovate, to accomplish, and to, to do more. And so I think that that in a modern sense, we have to be building. We can't just be aping what our ancestors did. We have to do more and rise to the challenges that our folk face right here, right now. That's certainly what they did then. And that's what their ancestors did before them. Right. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, winding down, people who are interested in connecting with the AFA, what are, what are the different ways that people can connect with you? <clears throat> well, the hub for all of it is www.runestone.org. Uh, Clifford Erickson, one of our WIT members, um, has put so much time into making our new website look nice and function well. That will give you a way to connect with your local folk builder, with any Gothar that are in your area. It'll help you read our court documents. It shows events that are going on, and that really helps you get connected. And it's got a very active news section. So everybody, I would encourage you to go there. Go there if you like us. Go there. If you don't like us, go there. If you just want to know more about us, just go to the website and check it out. Um, also, on Facebook, our Facebook page is pretty active. You're welcome to reach out there. House of True Folk Assembly. Um, you'll find it should be one of the first things that pops up. Um, you can reach out to me personally if you have any questions. Always feel free to do that. Matt Flavel, F-L-A-V-E-L, at runestone.org is my email address. Please feel free to reach out. On that website, it's got your local folk builder. And no matter where you are, chances are we've got somebody close to you and they can help you answer any questions you may have, get in touch with any local people if you wanna find out more about us or to have any questions, they're really good on that. If you have a spiritual question or, and I'll say this and I think this is important, if anybody out there within the sound of my voice, if you need to talk to somebody about something spiritual and you need help that way, please reach out to our Gothar. So what we're here for, we'd be really happy to answer anything you may have or help you through a situation you might be dealing with. And those contacts are all on the website as well. I'll say it one more time, www.runestone.org. That really will connect you with your people locally. Um, your interaction with the AFA shouldn't be an internet thing, but Again, like I was talking about earlier, we're, we're using what works for modern times and the Facebook page the, and the website are going to help you connect to somebody real. But the next step is actually meeting them, actually talking to them, having a phone call 
and we're all very eager to do those things. So that's the best way to reach out to us. Uh, that's awesome. If somebody wants to become more educated in Asatru, who is maybe not yet ready to make the step uh, to connect with, uh, with the organization, uh, what would you suggest they do? If they're not ready to actually talk to somebody, that's a little bit different. If you are and you just don't want to sign up, that's fine. Any of the people I just told you about can help direct you if with a specific question or a resource. Um, we have books on our website that we sell that I, you know, please buy our stuff. But honestly, the books we have on there will help you get a better understanding of where we're coming from and lore and things. If you're looking to buy uh, books, one thing, uh, Austro, a native European spirituality by Steve McNallan does a really good job of basically modern Austro one-on-one and telling you where modern Austro came from and a little bit about Steve and the AFA and how that was started. So I'd encourage you to buy that book if you want. Another one that would be really useful is uh, a book of Troth by Edred Thorson. Try to get, I think, the 2003 edition or the most recent edition, and that'll help you a little bit. Don't be confused by the title. That was before the Troth became the strange universalist situation it is now. Right. Um, but I'd also encourage you for more primary source stuff, um, the Culture of the Teutons by Wilhelm Gronbeck. It's a difficult read, but it's a really good one. And it's one of the few, it's one of the books that you know, I could read a few pages and I just had to set it down and let it digest because some of it just blew my mind on how well it was put. So that's a really good resource for you guys to read. And then once you do it, seriously, interact. Ask somebody, reach out. Just because you send an email doesn't mean you have to join or you know anybody's going to be hassling you, but it does have connect you with some people that would love to help. That's uh, that's that's great, you know. For my listeners, it'll be a familiar theme, but I think that although it's important for an individual to create the wall, and the wall I represent as the acknowledgement of who is in tribe, who is external, ex tribe. Although it is significant for a person to do that when it comes to allocating resources and investing energy and maintaining an individual and group identity that is you know, congruent, cohesive, uh, it is also important to maintain formulas of alliance and alliance building. You know, we need to be making allies where those allies can create a synergy with, you know, your group or you as an individual. Uh, so even if you are somebody who is not uh, an Asatur, not a, a Odinist, not a heathen, not somebody that connects with the gods of, 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 of Europe, you know, I would still say that there is value to be found in reading the, uh, you know, the, the adventures, the, the, the identities, the formulas that strong people during hard times, you know, uh, apply to their lives and, and the benefit that came of it. Uh, if you are somebody who does share, you know, this history in your, your people, I would, I would challenge you to uh, explore it for, you know, an, an even greater purpose. Um, being that being connecting with with a truth that you know at some point in your life may become more familiar than you realize it ever would you know and uh, and I will say you know wrapping up um, I really appreciate you you know you doing this you are probably the easiest guest I've ever had in terms of scheduling to talk it's like hey man want to do this yeah how about tomorrow sure see you then boom gets it done 
that's how I am as a guest, by the way. And like when people are, you know, sometimes you get the, the pomp and circumstance, the, well, I will uh, check my calendar and I will have one of my people. It's like, listen, like, give me a fucking break. You know, like either you want to do it or you don't, but you've had none of that. You have been authentic from the first interaction. And I, and I really, really appreciate you doing this talk. Well, no, I'm really appreciative for you having me on. It's a good opportunity. I look forward to talking to you. So yeah, I was chomping at the bit wanting to get on and, and make it as easy as possible. Uh, you know, it's a real, it's a real good opportunity to be able to speak to your audience. Um, and yeah, I look forward to getting a chance to talk about the AFA and talk about Austria whenever I can get it. That's, that's my life. So right thanks for having me on. No, absolutely. It was a privilege. Uh, I will say that I know the AFA has a, a function in Pennsylvania once a year, if I'm not mistaken. Winter nights. Winter nights. And, you know, I am in, in PA and just an open invitation to you and your lovely wife. Uh, my wife and I would love to have you guys over for, uh, for dinner or, you know, to hang out and connect uh, in any way. You know, no, no pressure, but the invitation's open. All right. This October, let's do it. All right. Sounds awesome. All right, brother. Uh, stand by.